Hello and welcome to The New Conspiracist, the podcast that puts the big capital C in conspiracy, mixes it up with a bit of QAnon, throws in the moon landings and a bit of Avril Lavigne and comes out with something looking like a monolith. Yes, that's right. We are back. Thank you so much for, uh, you know, rating and reviewing the show. We've, we've got a lot more than we had the last time I threw this out. So please do throw those uh, five star reviews because for my co-host, that's all that matters. James, how are you, mate? Uh, desperately in need of validation, as ever. Um, although I am actually deeply relieved this week that we are recording in audio only because I've just realised I have come to this podcast dressed as Rishi Sunak. I'm, I'm in a collared shirt and a uh, knitted hoodie. Uh, so, bit of a disaster. Uh, and I've just made it worse by fessing up. Usually I do the intros to our guests, but I think it is only right you explain how this week's podcast came to pass. I, and thankfully also our excellent guests, spent far too much time on Twitter, <laughs> uh, because this week we are joined by uh, Sarah Yassin, who uh, is the managing editor of BuzzFeed, which, uh, BuzzFeed News. She doesn't do the memes, she does the news, uh, <laughs> which I think means she's in charge of the news agenda and is thus responsible for everything that's happened in 2020. Is, is that right, Sarah? Yeah, that's exactly my responsibility. Please tell me there is a managing editor of memes at BuzzFeed. Please tell me that whole thing. I I I will just I will just let you believe that there has to be a managing editor of memes, um, but they work closely with the digital profit. They're... <laughs> it's an absolute pleasure to have Sarah with us. It's uh, sadly, you know, she doesn't work for the cool, fun meme bit of uh, BuzzFeed, which, as I recall, did used to actually have a cute animal correspondent. Um, <laughs> Instead, incredibly unfairly, you know, works for the serious uh, new things. She's covered human rights. She's traveled all, all around. And, you know, now I think does a lot of the curation, the breaking news and helps run things. But none of that is why she's with us today. She's with us today, partly, I think, because were you watching season four of The Crown? Heck yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, how, how, how has it made you feel about our beloved uh you know genetic overlords you know i i feel like i don't care about the monarchy until i watch some kind of a period drama and then i'm like wow these people are so boring and inbred but i will watch like seven million hours of content about them <laughs> <laughs> it's only fitting that we have an American on board to do an episode about the wondrous topic that we're on today because my goodness she certainly had a draw over there right yeah oh my god I mean well I feel like the existence of the royal family is for Americans they're your greatest export as I think regular listeners may have guessed this week's conspiracy theory is who killed Princess Diana. Um, except it's a little more than that. We, we know you expect a bit more from us. So we are actually asking, was Princess Diana killed because she was dating a Muslim man? Um, and it was a, a variation of the Diana conspiracy I actually had never heard. So, Sarah, why had it crossed your radar? Yeah, so I was binge-watching... Um the latest season of the crown. And I just, you know, 
I obviously grew up around all the Diana fever and the conspiracy I heard that was kind of variation on the popular one that um, I think Muhammad Al-Fayed was like passing around was that, you know, he was saying that like they couldn't handle the idea of like a Muslim stepfather to, you know, the possible King of England or something like that. This conspiracy that I heard was that a Quran was found in Princess Diana's room by the queen. And then she ordered her killed for that. That was what I heard growing up. Do you remember where you were when you heard that she had, uh, that she, uh, um, her extremely, you know, enigmatic flame had been, um, had been, you know, snuffed out, unfortunately, too early? I was at home. I remember because I was, I was, I was pretty young and I remember watching the news and I was like heartbroken because I thought she was amazing. So I was absolutely furious because it meant cartoons weren't on. <laughs> <laughs> so usually it was, it was a Sunday morning and you'd usually have cartoons on BBC two and then the boring news on, on BBC one. And I thought the TV was broken because it was showing the same thing on the different channels. So got my poor dad up early. and like, Dad, the news is on both channels. And then he, of course, sees Princess Diana's dead. And he's like, really? This was your headline? <laughs> so, I found out in a swimming pool on a family holiday in Greece from a Dutch kid. And I was absolutely mortified that this child thought it was okay to lie to me. So it was completely, I thought it was absolute nonsense. But I go as far as saying that for our generation, really, because we probably were a bit young for the Berlin Wall, this was really one of the moments where it felt like the world stopped. You know, this is one of the moments everyone remembers where they were. It, it was that and it was 9-11 really, wasn't it? I think even from sort of from the UK, those were the two that I can remember from like being a kid and a teenager. Mm. It was, it was, I just remember this kind of sense of immense outpouring of intense grief that I had never as a child sort of experienced. Sort of walk, I remember walking down the road because we came back, I think, the day afterwards and just li literally finding people crying, waving small Union Jack flags. It was absolutely bizarre. It was the most un British week kind of ever. Mm. And, there was just this massive kind of psychodrama of the the royal family clearly not having a clue how to react. And this was sort of quite early in New Labour. And Tony Blair was sort of possibly the most popular man in Britain. Yeah. And clearly desperately trying to get them to react like humans. And there was this sort of bizarre thing where over about the course of a week, they clearly got persuaded that they had to sort of show a little bit of humanity. And, you know, they had the, the boys come out and look at the flowers and sort of a, a few little moments like that. And, of course, Elton John played the funeral. But it was such a weird week because the, the public mood felt like they could have stormed the palace for totally. a Totally. There was Blair's speech. There was Elton John's song. You know, there was obviously the actual funeral procession itself, which became sort of almost folklore-like. I mean, it was all over. I mean, you know, I remember the National Enquirer dined out on it for about a decade and a half. The Daily Mail must have had a trillion clicks on any number of Diana sort of issues. But obviously now that the crown has come out, it's almost, it's not so much Diana conspiracies. It's conspiracies about anyone who ever interviewed Princess Diana has sort of become the new, new norm, isn't it? 
I feel like it's the combination of her being super popular and people finding her to be an empathetic figure, but also the fact that she was paranoid herself. Like, I think when I was a kid, I didn't realize how paranoid she was, you know, as a person. And then obviously while I was watching The Crown, I did the weird thing of our time where I'm like, I'm going to pause the episode and start reading a whole bunch. Yeah. And I had no idea that she was so paranoid as a person. And I think that that there's a way that that like kind of emanates out from her story. Because she would talk about there being forces and she'd make lots of dark hints and all this kind of stuff. And part of this, you know, some of this seems to have tied into various, you know, mental illnesses, some of which she spoke about while she was alive. Part of it ties into sort of, the terrible treatment she did get from Charles and some of the royals, but she, I, yeah, I suppose there is that element to it. I think, but I think it's really one of the really here that we 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 say that when we say the mental illnesses, what we're really talking about is someone who was deeply traumatized, harassed, harangued, totally and utterly ostracized from. Um, I think really conveying any meaningful part of themselves in a manner that they saw befitting apart from sort of cresting through these you know whether it was her their, their, their trip to uh, uh, america into new york or you know um because very famously and i think they make a big thing about this don't they in one of the episodes of the crown she visited uh, a number of um places there was a i think there was a, a school for disadvantaged children in harlem that had not really been picked up by any of the british sort of you know, royalty or, or political establishment comes over. And she she's definitely had experienced a type of um, ostracization from the sort of public norms of how the royal family were, were, were wanting to sort of convey. And I thought what were the, one of the most interesting things about the way Peter Morgan constructed the new series was that idea that, I mean, there's that terrible scene. Do you remember the scene where she's sort of curtsying not the correct way to the royal family? Lena Bonham Carter is admonishing her, who, by the way, I will literally watch in anything because I think she's just absolutely amazing. But, but I mean, it it did actually shock me, this series of The Crown. It made me realise how little basis I had for the sort of image that I had sort of within her. You guys must have... Already, has BuzzFeed actually done anything about sort of fact-checking that series? What was true? What was it embellishment? So I don't think we've done a fact-checking thing. I know that, um, so one of my colleagues, um, Ellie Hall, she's like, she's very, she's very into kind of reporting on the royal family. And um, she did a couple of things about about Diana, I think she wrote something about the wedding dress. And I think she wrote because the wedding dress wasn't really like a focus in the show, which I actually found really weird because that dress was such an important cultural moment. And they yeah. just like brushed past it, which I guess like maybe it was nice for them to portray her as miserable on her wedding day because, you know, she did call that like one of the worst days of her life. Mm. So, um, yeah, I mean, so we didn't, we didn't do any like kind of like, debunking or fact-checking thing it's actually a good idea um, there's big narrative choices that get made by something like yeah. this and this is sort of one of the interesting things with diana in that the way we've written her as a character since her death is not how she was written before yeah. it i mean she was absolutely notoriously brilliant at pr mm. 
and at publicity, often in quite self-serving ways, um, but quite destructive ways around. You know, she knew how to lash out. And, you know, while she may have been tricked into doing the infamous Bashir interview, it was an incredibly calculated set of movements. Um, she was really in dwindling popularity up to her death. She was not polling like she used to. She was not regarded like she used to. They, You know, the public were on a teardown cycle as well as the mm. media. The media give the public the content the public wants. And so you then suddenly had this, you know, she died in this moment and then became an absolute hero, saint figure, tragic. Mm. And the public obviously didn't want to be on the side against her and so retconned the whole sort of narrative with her. And, of course, something like The Crown ends up paying into that where the only way it's going to work with a UK audience and even more a US audience is if Diana is basically the wronged, tragic victim throughout rather than possibly a more complex three-dimensional story is someone who maybe had a better sense of what she was letting herself into that is let on. Just to take it away from critical theory of the crown, it's why the conspiracies are interesting because they rely on that hero narrative that kind of wasn't there until after she was dead. Well, I mean, that's, that's partly true, uh, I think. I don't think that I would, you know, ever underestimate the sort of totemic power of those images of her sort of, you know, looking at landmines, um, you know, those moments of uh, literally physical contact with the public. Like, just totally I mean, uh, until Diana did that, everyone was incredibly pro-landmine, especially blowing up children. <laughs> it, it was a seismic moment in public opinion. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. I think it's important that we address this at this point, which is that there is a fascinating thing going on, even within the royal response to it, where it seems the thing they're most concerned about, or certainly from what I've read, is the length of time that Charles was having an affair with Camilla. <laughs> it wasn't, oh, yeah. It's not that he wasn't having it or hadn't been having it even before this you know, Angelou, you know, young thing who undoubtedly probably craved her own sort of level of attention and ambition. I think that certainly shines through uh, this series. But the, the, the truth, uh, we'll, which we'll obviously never really know, has got to be somewhere in the middle because, you know, you are looking at such a, an age gap and such a deeply naive sort of character to be thrown into this, um, you know, completely utterly bizarre hierarchy that is the royal family. Um, do you do you feel more sympathetic after watching The Crown to Diana than you did before, Sarah? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I didn't 
I didn't realize that she was just a child. You know, this was kind of the same thing with Monica Lewinsky. Mm. Look back at that time period because you were a kid. You don't realize how young she was. She was literally a child and she thought she was walking into a fairy tale. Mm. And I think that everything, I think, I think that that's kind of the main thing with her, right? Like she had this loneliness that I think like she seemed to really crave love and it, you know, kind of watching how her parents' marriage was a disaster and then going into this other marriage, I'm sure to a certain extent, she thought this was going to save her. And, you know, but, or maybe I'm, maybe I'm projecting onto her, right. That like, you know, she seems like someone that you would know, you know, like, but she was, was, you know, she was a child. She didn't know what she was walking into and, you know, they, they had a big age gap, not just like literally just a big age gap, but like also just, you know, he was what old for his age and she was young for her age. So it was like, probably you could probably add another 10 years to the gap between them. Mm. So, you know, I, I felt like, I felt like my heart broke for her even more. Um, just thinking about what the early days of her marriage were like, I'm curious to see how they handle the next season, because I do think that then they probably will play up the fact that she kind of came into her own and sort of had this toxic relationship with attention. Yeah. And I mean, this is almost, she was almost playing the part of a tabloid sort of fallen princess. It kind of seems like with hindsight, it fe- some of it feels performative because she did kind of, as you hinted at earlier, she did have these three boyfriends. She was sort of almost picking people who would piss off the establishment and would piss off the media. That seems to have almost been part of the attraction to it for her. Or, or maybe it isn't. I mean, one interesting thing that you just said that I, I wonder about is she seems really easy as a character and as a person to project onto and to kind of see what you want to in there. And I wonder how much of her mystique is that. And maybe that's that, you know, that mystique is what then provokes all the varying conspiracies around her, isn't it? Why, you know, why is she so easy to project on? I think it's because she is, you know, she is so many women that people know, right? Like I, I think that at that time period, it was so controversial to get a divorce, even though, you know, people were getting divorces, you know, so many of us know people who, you know, have parents who like waited way too long to have a divorce because it was very uncommon. And, you know, you, you sort of, you have this trope of like the wronged woman and almost, you know, even though she had her own affairs, you know, the fact that Camilla was like, this kind of ever present figure, I feel like people kind of can, it's almost like, you know, it's, it's probably in some ways, another version of the Angelina, you know, Brad Pitt, Jennifer Aniston thing. Like, I think that people are very obsessed with like the love triangle. Yeah. Yeah. Even though, you know, honestly, I mean, Camilla was wronged, right? Like, you know, she was in love with this person and, you know. Yeah, I I, I always kind of wonder, am, am I unusual in feeling really kind of bad for Camilla? Like, I think she obviously was always in love. It was obviously always mutual. And to kind of avoid the minor scandal of, like, the heir to the throne marrying a divorcee, they ended up causing so many people so much pain you know Charles is an unpleasant boring man she likes him why could they not have just let it happen I you know I'm I'm quite 
Team Camilla did nothing wrong. And this is my strongest opinion I've had on the Royal Royals well, I'm, ever. I'm interested in exploring this with you both now because, I mean, looking at it, you know, through the purview, obviously, of a piece of, you know, narrative fiction, um, you know, with all the developments that have taken place, you know, post the kind of Me Too and Time Up and, you know, everything, all these kind of huge societal changes that have gone past. How do we feel now about essentially someone being selected like livestock to breed the next generation of monarchs? I think it's how it is, right? I mean, this is this is what it means to have a monarchy because it is an obsession with blood and whatever, you know, and I thought actually the episode about the... Um, the, the siblings that, or was it siblings or cousins? It was cousins that they had that were being hidden away because they had, oh, um, yeah. they were suffering from um, mental illness. Like, like that was, you know, that was like a very important moment, I think, because it kind of showed how they do get obsessed with these things because it is ultimately connected to this idea that like, if they have this specific kind of blood, then that means that they can stay in power. If they don't have that blood, then they, they lose their power, which is like yeah. already an insane thing. I mean, I mean, it's literally eugenics, isn't it? I mean, it's quite, quite bizarre how central this actually is to this kind of, you know, c- continued exploration of, you know, what the monarchy actually means to us now in the UK. I mean, I think it's... You know, you know, I've I've got a, a bit of trivia to interrupt you with here, Joy. And I'm pretty sure the Queen is the first like monarch or spouse of a monarch who didn't have to have the Home Secretary present when she was giving birth. You don't. Um, I mean, can you imagine uh, Pretty Patel having to sit in your oh delivery room? Uh, horrifying bullying wife, but telling her to hurry up and this, come with it. This comes from this sort of really old thing that kept like a really old royal conspiracy theory that came back for monarch after monarch was the baby in the bedpan or the changeling and the the queen giving birth to the heir and someone swapping it with a common baby or something like that and so the home secretary would be present for the birth of people high up in the line of succession again because of this weird bloodline fixation Mm. Uh, and I think the queen kind of went yeah no (laughs) (laughs) isn't it because what we, I thought, I was so interested, Sarah, to, to, to find out why you think it is such a sort of utter obsession in America with this sort of notionality of this monarchy. Do you, do you think it's particularly with Diana, does it, does it play into the kind of Disney, Cinderella story? Obviously, we've already talked about sort of, you know, being able to, you know, project onto her, you know, the, the canvas of this, you know, Angelou sort of our hopes and dreams. But is it is it very connected to that sort of, you know, Disneyfication of our childhoods, do you think? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that in, in I think that here people, although I would say in most places people are obsessed with a good fairy tale. I think that here we... You know, I feel like there's this fetishization of wealth and I feel like there's a there's a certain kind of elegance that people associate with like a royal family. And it's it's very I actually, you know, I I don't know what would be at the heart of it. I remember when I was living in London the 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 Kate and William wedding was happening and there were so many American outlets that were there. And I remember like friends that I have, 
here in the States, they were like, are you going to the Royal wedding? I was like, Oh, I'm sorry. My invitation got lost in the mail. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It was very confusing for me because I felt like, you know, most of the British people around me didn't really care and just were happy to have days off, which honestly the days off made a Royalist out of me. Um, But like, honestly, like people didn't, I mean, it, it was very bizarre to me that it felt more important to Americans than it did to British people. And I feel like it's because it's exotic, right? Like we don't have, you know, we're not going to have like some, you know, big wedding that is televised and, you know, it's really important to the entire country. I mean, Sarah, if you'd only voted for a second term of Donald Trump, you could have had that royal family. I know. Oh, but although, you know, I don't think that he would have, you know, if they got a new wedding for Ivanka, you know, just be a bunch of gold everywhere. <laughs> so I, I have to say the worst thing about living in New York was having to constantly talk about the fucking royals. <laughs> like no one, no one in Britain really does. Um, like the maximum acceptable length of a conversation about Meghan Markle is about two and a half minutes. And then you kind of have to move on. People hear this accent in like, you know, East Village in um, on Manhattan. And that is it. You are going to spend 90 minutes like talking about Princess Michael of Kent or something. It is extraordinary though. I mean, I think that this series of The Crown has actually come around at a fantastic time for the royal family because it's definitely done a lot to deflect away from, you know, the Prince Andrew, Je- uh, Jeffrey Epstein you know, contain Maxwell kind of royal angle, hasn't it? Yeah. Was anyone else annoyed that the actor for Prince Andrew is quite hot? I, I found that really aggravating, honestly. I mean, I literally turned on Netflix the other day and it, there's more Diana documentaries that are actually now on the front page than than episodes of The Crown. I mean, it's it's suddenly become like a national obsession again. Oh, I mean, well, it's, but it's the algorithm though, right? Like it's, they want, they, they know you're going to watch the Diana in her own words, which obviously I did. Well, that was really powerful, I thought actually. Yeah. No, I thought it was really great. I mean, and I, I, you know, I like that the, you know, I like that they did the disclaimer at the beginning of it being like, you know, this is just her side of the story. And, but you know, she, she just, she comes off as this real victim. And, you know, I think the thing is, the, the royal family being so silent, I think that it makes you think that they're hiding some really messed up stuff. Like, you know, I think between the Meghan Markle and Prince Harry stuff, and then, you know, kind of coming back to Diana and then, you know, wrap in a little bit of Epstein, like, just like, what is the royal family hiding? One day there's going to be a big old leak. Um, and, we're just going to find out some really crazy stuff, which I think is the reason why people have conspiracy theories about them. I think that the, the fascinating thing as well is that, as Sarah's saying, you know, it just seems like more, more and more like the most shady organization that seems to also demand a type of, um, you know, uh, indefatigable loyalty, no matter what. I mean, certainly the impression that you get from, you know, any of those programs really is that the people who work in the administrative branches of the monarchy are all basically like cult members. You know, they are absolutely, totally and utterly dedicated to preserving this lunacy. You know, it's kind of funny because the way you were describing it, it sounded a little bit like you know, the, the kind of like the Trump world. I don't think you can ever underestimate still just the 
because we've we've talked a bit already about this the notionality of the fairy tales and you know certainly when you're uh you know start writing narrative fiction and you start you know as, as a filmmaker generally you're introduced quite early on to the work of joseph campbell and the idea of uh the the central and absolutely necessary role that fairy tale and story narrative and really the hero's journey has on mobilizing public, you know, uh, uh, you know, really sort of just actually mobilizing sort of public support around things. And the reinvigoration of nationalism on such a sort of massive scale does seem to sort of benefit institutions like the monarchy, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that I think that this is something that you're seeing a lot of leaders playing with, right? Like, you know, Erdogan is trying to play up this whole, you know, Ottoman mm. uh, nostalgia. You know, Putin is playing on the like, you know, um, the like Soviet Union nostalgia. Like, I think that there's this. You could you could argue Macron is doing the same in a quite a lot of oh, ways. Oh yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, I feel like I feel like that's you know, it's a useful tool. It's this idea of taking back what was lost, isn't it? It's this sort of central idea that when you can reintroduce the notion into the public mind that you've lost something that you didn't even know you had and they took it from you, that suddenly there is this huge psychological sort of surge, isn't there, of of connection to that idea because everyone just feels so screwed over. Yeah, I think that that's very true. I mean, that's also, I mean, the the kind of the emotion behind the whole make America great again thing, right? Mm. There was, you know, Trump was trying to make people feel like what was taken from them was taken by, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever minority group he was angry at that week. I was. Uh, I watched most of the Crown. Um, uh, I went on a, a writers' retreat into the uh, a, a small like Airbnb that I managed to get in the um, in the sort of Cotswold Hills, a little sort of a, a kind of converted artist studio, pottery cottage. And you, you know, you, what you do is you go for long walks on the Cotswold Way. And I was absolutely staggered how many times you just walk into one of these giant. Uh, you know, hereditary, hereditary peerage given, um, you know, private, sh- you know, shag piles, like these stately homes dot the countryside. And they're, they're a fundamental part of this as well, aren't they? Because if you actually got rid of the monarchy, the next thing that would happen would be people saying, well, why do we have an elect- unelected House of Lords? Why has all this money been given away from peerages, you know, to, uh, you know, these huge country estates? I mean, James, you, you'd know better than me, but isn't it some ridiculous portion of public land is actually owned by hereditary peers, isn't it? Um, it's, it's sort of hereditary peers have got a bit fiddly because they don't automatically go in the House of Lords, etc. now. But yes, I mean, the Duke of Westminster owns so much of London that actually leasehold existed just to fuel his estate no. and to let him continue to You're own joking. it. Like, oh my God. the ways our landlords work, it's like that. Charles genuinely owns most of Cornwall, um, to the point also that if someone dies in Cornwall without a will their assets go to Prince no. Charles personally. No, no. Uh, he actually uses them to fund his charitable work. He doesn't keep them, but he, he would be allowed to do that. The Queen actually was BuzzFeed's landlord in the uh, UK. 
um, the uh, the old BuzzFeed yeah. offices, which used to be right by Oxford Circus, uh, the Crown Estate owns that entire row of shops. Uh, and the offices above them, they own a massive amount. And so also what we count as what we give to the royal family is the public funds they get. The money they get from their, like, private holdings, we supposedly, you know, treat as if it's just normal rich person money, which is nonsense. Is it two-thirds of the Scottish Highlands also owned by the Crown Estate? I don't know know about that figure, but they certainly have huge holdings up there. Um, it's it's absolutely wild. We are a sort of mad backward I mean, country. It's a crazy, like, nice crime map here, isn't it? I mean, really. I mean, it's just a huge, huge racket being like, oh, I am the child of God. <laughs> I'm the child of God and my bloodline is, is sacrosanct. So you will all. <laughs> we do actually, like formally and constitutionally, we do still believe uh, on paper, at least, in, that the Queen has a divine right to rule, yeah. uh, which which is wild, but but sort of slightly slightly relate from that, just to sort of throw us back to the sort of core conspiracy as Sarah mm. presents it to us. I think there's something interesting about Diana as kind of the JFK assassination of yeah. of its generation in that there's not one conspiracy theory, there's dozens. And the JFK ones always tied into whatever insecurity or political issue was going at the time. You know, was it organised crime? Was it to start or stop a war? Was it to do X or Y? And I think there's something probably quite grim in the fact that there are clearly lots of people and lots of Muslims who believe the royal family would kill sort of the mother of their own grandchildren mm. rather than let her possibly convert to um, a clearly moderate form of Islam, given that Dodi al Fayed was not in any sense a, pra- you know, a full, fully practicing one. Sorry, that's got to tell us something pretty profound about how secure people feel in societies, right? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, part of it had to do with the fact that, you know, Islamophobia is at that point too something that people didn't acknowledge. There wasn't even a word for it. And, Mm. you know, know, people felt anti-Muslim sentiment in an intense way, you know, and at that time period too, you know, that was, that was what around the Gulf war. And, you know, that was when people, you know, people were kind of anti Muslim sentiment was pretty high. You know, there was, there was not like, it was not an easy time, I think, to be kind of a Muslim in a, in particularly in a Western context. I think that's something with Diana though, is that, you know, so it kind of has to do with this thing of like people, you know, kind of wanting their form of persecution, um, recognized and kind of pushing that out onto different things. But I also think that part of this is that Diana is weirdly, she's very Muslim, right? Like to me, Diana was like represented Muslim values. Like even, even in the like tabloid points or whatever, like that didn't make a difference. Like she was very, she was very compassionate and very, um, like very, she, she appeared very like kind and generous and like, these are all values that like Muslim kids are taught in school. It's like very much drilled in your head. Like you're a very compassionate person. You're very empathetic. You, you know, you give to the needy. So it was like, 
it was kind of funny because, you know, she probably never realized this, but she was one of the best, like the best lessons in Muslim values that discipline never occurred to me. You are spot on here. She was, wasn't she? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, you know, and I, I felt like I remember watching her and, you know, being like, oh yeah, it's a, at the same time I was like learning about the prophet and stuff. And I was like, oh, you know, these are people who, you know, even though they're in positions of, you know, wealth or, you know, because the prophet was pretty comfortable when he, you know, when he became a prophet, which I think a lot of people might not know. Like he was like, he was like older. He had like plenty of servants, et cetera. Like they, they made a point, like it was a virtue that he helped around the house because he absolutely didn't need yeah. to. Did yeah, he? yeah. I mean, he was also, I believe he was 40 when he became a prophet. So he also wouldn't have made like a 30 under 30 list or anything like that. <laughs> it's uh sorry sorry prophet Mohammed. just you know sorry, you've been like, to this, uh, this year but uh, we'll see what's going on next year <laughs> well, it was really interesting because even then at that point too um mother Teresa had died what wasn't it like a few months later uh it was the day before was it the day before yeah, she really, really got like bumped uh, obituary wise. It it was really close together. Well, that was the thing was that them both dying at the same time felt like a light had gone out because they were these two people who were being painted as being very generous mm. and very, you know. And I didn't know anything about Mother Mother Teresa and like you know I I later learned more about Mother Teresa. But you know at the you time knew about her steez, you know what I mean? We knew we knew she was good at like helping the sick. I mean yeah. everyone had that that vibe, you know. Yeah, yeah, and I was like, you know, I think I remember f- feeling at the time, like even as a kid, that like you know something had you know, something had like gone missing because, you know, that is, it is a very popular, I I think that this goes for Muslims, Christians, like any like religious family. I think that because celebrities are usually seen as being like vapid and obsessed with money and obsessed with like all of these other things to see celebrities that were obsessed with doing good was kind of a novelty. Whereas now, I mean, now you see celebrities you know, talking about their political beliefs or like, you know, doing charity or whatever, like that's more of a thing now. But back then, you know, it was much more about like excess and like affairs and, you know. Yeah, the celebrities just had to do like one group sing along every decade, didn't they? And they could just keep recording the same song as well. It was simple as God awful sort of let's save us from the pandemic sing along. And I hadn't really thought about it, Sarah, until you said it about the time and, you know, the, you know, the Gulf War and that sort of slow rising tide of anti-Semitism. Because I guess at the time in the movies that we were watching, it was still kind of yellow peril. It was still kind of, you know, the Soviets were generally the baddies in movies. It hadn't got to, you know, Allah al-Akbar being said within, you know, 11 seconds of a new series of 24 coming out on Fox. Um, so we hadn't quite got to that point do you think that that is sort of the key to this conspiracy that sort of islamophobia i mean i think at least the way that i heard it you know what's hard is that a lot of like you know my family's palestinian and so there there are like a lot of like incredibly crazy things that have happened within that the context of that situation right like you know like like it's it's hard when you have like a lack of information about something it's very easy to like start creating a narrative around something. And especially when the, the possibilities are like, 
are crazy, then I think it's very easy to believe something crazy. Just because I have, I mean, I have heard a lot of like conspiracy theories over the course of my life. And it was always really interesting because I feel like people will take conspiracy theories that feel like they could be true. And there is like one ounce of like a crazy thing that would potentially happen. And then it just spins completely out of control. Um, and it's, it's kind of surreal to see, uh, America go that way. Right. Because, you know, the reason why I feel like it would happen in, you know, the Middle East or places where maybe like freedom of information is not as, as much of a thing. And like, you know, people don't have a free press in the same way. So it's easy to like try to fill in the blanks. But here people have access to so much information and so much knowledge and there's, you know, and yet they still choose to believe like really completely cuckoo things. Mm. I think it's because the nature of discourse has become so discordant with the basic ideas of, you know, fact and that we now have this sort of new reality where if you feel it strongly, then you're probably right. (laughs) But if you feel it with it, you know, you get a good strong kind of internal twinge. I mean, it's a sort of, um, you know, it's it, it's a sort of you know new divining rod technology for facts, isn't it? There's, there's an actual term for it, Joel. It's called truthiness. Uh, I can't quite remember who coined it, but basically, if it feels true, then it may as well be mm. true, and it's an incredibly dangerous idea. So it, it come to this fundamental point where I need to ask you, Sarah. You know, drum roll, obviously taking place in my mind. Is it the case? Is it true or false that Princess Diana? was murdered by the queen because she was going to become a Muslim. You know, I have to say false, and it's only because I don't think the queen can think that that strategically. Oh, man. <laughs> How totally disappointing. James, where are you on this one, true or false? Sir, I, I'm going to say, I, I think our listeners should, you know, three o'clock on Christmas Day, look at the cold, hard, dead eyes of the queen as she gives her a draft. <laughs> And ask themselves to come to their own conclusions. <laughs> on, uh, on that factual bombshell, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast full of uh, truthiness. Right, James? That's what we're calling it now, truthiness? <laughs> truthiness, yes. <laughs> um, we'll be back uh, next week. Please, please, if you're enjoying the podcast, please give it a five-star rating on iTunes. Share it with your mates, particularly your racist nan or your maybe, you know, slightly conspiracy theory sharing uh, uncle. And guys... Let's just say this. Take the bloody vaccine. Okay? I'm just going to throw it out there at the end of the podcast. Um, I think that should be our weekly sign-off now. Get the bloody vaccine. vaccine. (laughs) I've already had to explain to a number of people that it doesn't contain sort of nanobots that are going to sort of triggered by 5G when Bill Gates flips the big button. But, uh, you know, I thought it was just worth saying just before Christmas, you know. Sarah, thank you so, so much uh, for coming on the podcast. Where can people find you? This is my pleasure. Um, I am on Twitter where I act like a trash can, and it's just Sarah Yusian. <laughs> okay, great. Well, listen, uh, thanks so much uh, for coming on the show. Um, and guys, you know, check out The Crown. binge watch it all before the queen takes it down yeah exactly (laughs) or screw that out (laughs) 